In that sleep, and in the sleeps to follow, the judge did visit. Who would come other? A great shambling mutant, silent and serene. Whatever his antecedents, he was something wholly other than their sum, nor was there system by which to divide him back into his origins, for he would not go. Whoever would seek out his story through what unraveling of loins and ledger books must stand at last darkened and dumb at the shore of a void without terminus or origin, and whatever science he might bring to beat upon the dusty primal matter blowing down out of the millennia will discover no trace of any atavistic egg by which to reckon his commencing. When I was 27, I came across a book. It was called Blood Meridian, The Evening Redness in the West. It was written by Cormac McCarthy. It took me seven nights to read, and I have been fascinated by it for the last 10 years. I've read countless articles and books on the novel, but it remains a mystery. Recently, Stephanie Rents published a memoir of her experience teaching it. She went through his archives and even traveled to the geographical locations McCarthy wandered to gain his inspiration. I have her on the show today. Blood Meridian is arguably a work of genius. This book is about violence for the sake of violence, darkness because there is nothing else. It is continuous action and description. There is no interior. There is no he felt or he thought. Simply, a group of mercenaries set out to scalp natives for money. They kill everyone who comes across their path and eventually one another in the Mexican and American deserts in the 1840s. The two main characters are the kid and the judge. The judge is hyper-intelligent, a liar, a poet, and murderously violent. He rapes, kills, and scalps men, women, and children. He does this simply because it is his purpose. The kid is the book's protagonist. He expresses vague flickers of compassion every 60 pages or so. He is violent himself, but expresses hints of humanity against the wholly inhumane group that surrounds him. These acts and thoughts of humanity and sympathy are like memories of memories of lightning, eventually fading and receding into nothingness by the book's end. Welcome to the Gilmore Podcast. Uh, today on the show, we have Stephanie Reentz, who received a BA from Amherst College, a second BA from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, and an MFA from the University of Arizona. She is author of The Kissing List, a collection of connected stories that was an editor's choice in the New York Times Book Review, and I Meant to Kill Ye, a bibliomemoir that is an account of her journey into the strange voice at the heart of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. She has twice been awarded an O. Henry Prize for short fiction. Her novel, I Love to Run, is forthcoming from Penguin Random House. Thank you so much for being here, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. So, Blood Meridian, let's talk about it. Yeah, great. <laughs> How long have you been teaching it for? Um, let's see, I started teaching it in, um, I think the first time was 2005 and my first like real teaching gig, I was a visiting assistant professor at Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania. Um, 
And I've taught it on and off since then. Um, but I first encountered it, you know, as a uh, just right after my senior year of college in 1992. And it was right after um, All the Pretty Horses came out. And I decided mm -hmm. I would read everything that Cormac McCarthy had ever written. And uh, and Blood Meridian was one of those books where I finished it and I just like had no idea what had just happened. Um, even on the final page, I didn't know like what had happened in the jakes between the uh, between the, the kid um, then called the man uh, and the judge. Um, so it was a book that just utterly befuddled me and grabbed me and terrified me. And I think that's why I kept returning to it. What was your sensation, if you remember, after reading it? Um, uh, it was both it was both confusion and horror. Uh, I had never encountered a book that was so violent that I had to actually shut it on occasion. Um, and so I was really interested in that, um, in how did it um, how did it evoke such a strong response in me? Um, right. How did you feel it the first time you read it? I had a very interesting, it, you because people call it a nihilistic book. It's about blood and death and violence <laughs> for the sake of violence. I had a truly cathartic moment when I finished reading it. And I don't know why it was that sensation of fullness Mm -hmm. and of watching a tragedy unfold it was like watching king lear for the first time mm -hmm. but it's completely the opposite of king lear because there are no emotions really in the entire book there's no internal right. dialogue and that's what fascinated me about it i thought why do i feel this as i said this sensation of fullness after finishing this book that is all violence and all horror um, so it's remained a mystery to me, but I want to talk to you about that too. Mm -hmm. Um, so you've been teaching it for 10 years. Where do you teach now? Um, you know, I actually just, um, I've sort of, uh, I was chair of the English department at Holy Cross and I've been teaching at Holy Cross since 2007, but I have just left Holy Cross to focus full time on my writing career. Uh, fantastic. Which is, yeah. Which is connected to a move from the East coast to the West coast. So, um, so that is an exciting change and and hopefully I'll have even more time to think about books and think about writing. So over the last 10 years, what are some of the most surprising or interesting insights your students have had about Blood Meridian? Well, I have to say, you know, I I um I think that I would say what is most interesting to me is how game students are for an extremely difficult novel, because it is a very difficult novel. It, it doesn't have a plot. It doesn't have a point of view character, really. Uh, it uh, It's extremely violent. It has extremely difficult um, language and um, and lots and lots of landscape writing, which personally I find difficult to get through at times. Um, so, um, in light of all of those challenges, I have just been surprised by students' willingness to engage with it and also by what it comes to mean to them. Um, and it, you know, it's funny, I just, um, with Cormac McCarthy's death, uh, a student wrote to me, um, to say, um, you know, after hearing about Cormac McCarthy's passing, I wanted to thank you for introducing me to his work, um, four and a half years ago, um, as a student, I encountered plenty of great writers, but I remain stuck in the world of Blood Meridian. I'll never look at the West in the same way. 
Um, and I just think that's really interesting that that um, that this novel, um, you know, I think for for many students who and I actually I taught this this novel to freshmen, so I didn't, you know, so it's uh, I wasn't even waiting for like students in an uh, you know in an upper level upper level literature course. I was teaching it to freshmen who were not even English majors. And the fact that they were willing to engage with it and the fact that this book has stayed with them, I, I find that very remarkable. Um, yeah. And I, I think that, you know, um, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a work of brilliance. And I think students see that in, in the novel. Did any of them dislike it to the point where they just said, I'm not up for writing about this, I'm going to complain, whatever? No, they never did. I mean, I think I always warn students that they're about to read a very violent novel um, and that they I warn them that they were about to read a very challenging novel. And I think that they all rose to that to that to the challenge of reading it. And we were doing it in the context of a, a literature course on the um, of literature of the American frontier. Uh, so we were thinking about the various ways that writers um, either mythologize or demythologize the stories we tell about, um, you know, uh, Western movement in the United States. Speaking of mythology, you're a writer. I'm a writer. Yeah. Um, Cormac McCarthy is mythologized kind of as a writer's writer, eschewing fame, money, family, all for the devotion to his craft. Um, as a writer and a human being, what are your thoughts on living that way? Yeah, well, I, I have to say it was deeply appealing to me when I was a young person. Me too. I, mean, I, think, yeah. I think that was part of the reason I really love Cormac McCarthy. There was that, you know, he's done very few interviews over the years. And when I first encountered him, he'd done almost no interviews. But that, there was an interview in the New York Times magazine with him. And... Um, and I don't know that this is correct, but I had this memory of of uh, of McCarthy saying, you know, like writing's no different than looking at my boots. It's just one of these things that I do. And I thought that that was I don't know. I thought that that was cool. I thought the fact that he had a kind of itinerant life uh, that he moved around from motel to motel and that he carried light bulbs with him. And he screwed them, you know, he he replaced the light, the dim light bulbs in these cheap motels where he was staying. I found that terribly romantic. Um, and I think I really was drawn to his kind of rebellious streak, the, the fact that he wasn't going to play the game that so many writers play. He wasn't going to teach. He wasn't going to do interviews. He wasn't going to do readings. Um, and in many ways, I mean, I think I was drawn to him because he was the very opposite of who I was. Um, you know, there I was, a young woman, super rule abiding. Um, but, you know, but at the same time, I was attending an East Coast college. I was from Idaho. And I felt like that a huge part of my identity was uh, wrapped up in being a Westerner. <laughs> Um, and I think so that was another reason that he he uh, was deeply appealing to me because he was writing about uh, a region that I was very interested in and a region that was relatively kind of like mysterious to the people I was going to college with. At that point, my small New England college was mostly populated um, with, you know, East Coasters, not not Westerners um, or yeah. Californians were the kind of Westerners who were there. Um, 
And so, um, yeah, so I found that all very, very interesting. I think there's a real cult of personality around Cormac McCarthy. Um, I've, uh, I went to a Cormac McCarthy conference a couple of years ago, and I was really interested in the fact that there were so many um, just like fans of his at the conference. It was hardly probably half filled with academics and, and critics and half filled with fans. And um, I recall someone saying like they couldn't wait to find out which books were in Cormac McCarthy's library. So there's this deep interest in like who he is as a person, which I think probably comes from the fact that he's so private. Um, and so I don't know that I'm terribly interested in him at this point in my life. Uh, I don't know that I'm terribly interested in him as a person, but I think mm -hmm. he's a very interesting writer. So some of my kind of fangirl um, behavior has slowly, uh, slowly subsided. What what strikes me about his rebelliousness and, and his eschewing of, of all those things of money and fame and interviews is that it seems genuine to me. Like mm -hmm. I can picture myself in a magazine article saying those things, wanting yes. them to be printed about me. You know, Jesse Gilmore really doesn't like, you know, being interviewed, but really I secretly love being interviewed, you know, because I like attention. His seems genuine to the core to me as if he were, as if he really noticed his calling and is defined by that and and really ran with it. And I, I suppose I respect that as much as I respect someone who's deeply involved in their carpentry. I just think it's another job. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think when you, um, I spent some time um, in the archives looking at his, um, the research he did for this, for this novel. And many people have written extensively about the research that he did for his, this novel. And, you know, he you can see the amount of work that went into Blood Meridian and, and presumably has gone into every single novel that he's written. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think his dedication to his craft, to his vocation is is really, really awe-inspiring. Um, and, um, you know, so kind of eschewing a more conventional life was what he needed to do to follow his vocation. And I, I deeply respect that. Um, you know, I think to some extent, the kind of like myth, the kind of romantic view that I had of him probably um, was also created by the kind of angle that the New York Times took in writing about him. You know, sure. so I don't think I don't think that Cormac McCarthy was super invested in creating that uh, persona, but rather, you know, a New York Times reporter would have fun creating that persona. It strikes me as a terribly lonely life. That's the way I look at it. Someone yeah. did a, an interview with Philip Roth years ago and said he lived completely alone in this estate in Connecticut and his, his apartment or his house rather was just filled with manuscripts but no children, no wife, no family around. And this was at the age where I started myself thinking about, you know, having a family and realizing I didn't want to spend eight to 10 hours a day in a room by myself writing. I want to do other things as well. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, while it's impressive in its way, it's not a life that interests me. And it, doing some background research on you, it doesn't sound like it's been a life that's 
interesting. No, I've got a pretty, yeah. You have a family. A very, very different life. Yeah, I have a family. And in fact, I found myself to be a much more productive writer since having um, having a little boy than I was in my many years of childlessness and uh, and being single. So it's having a slightly more structure suits me. That's really, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why having a family has ramped up your writing or, or distilled um, it? Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I certainly have less time than I did before. Um, and that is a frustration. Um, and certainly I'm looking forward to having more time now that I'm not going to be teaching full time. Uh, but I think that I have a lot more stability um, with a family. I mean, I didn't, I got married when I was like 42. I had a kid when I was 44. So I, you know, I had like a full life uh, on my own. And, um, but I didn't have a lot, necessarily have a lot of stability during those years. Um, sure. And so, um, and then, yeah, so I think I have more stability. And also just, I think I, you know, maybe I was a late bloomer. I grew up and, uh, and figured out some things about writing um, and about myself as a writer that were, that were useful. Um, and that have allowed me to be, you know, I'm not super productive, but slightly more productive. I'd love to talk to you more about writing. So maybe we can do that another time, but yeah, I want to get great. back to, yeah. I want to get back to Blood Meridian. Yeah, so definitely. listen, I've read numerous academic articles on Blood Meridian over the last 10, 10 years. I've read John Sepik's notes on Blood Meridian, mm-hmm. um, but I have my own theory and I want to bring it to you, and I want to know what you think of it, and I yeah. want the honest opinion. So yeah. I'm going to start off with a quote from Judge Holden. I've done the intro to these characters in the intro that's separately recorded, so it will be in mm-hmm. the final version. Okay. So here's the quote. This is the nature of war, whose stake is at once the game and the authority and the justification. Seen so, war is the truest form of divination. It is the testing of one's will and the will of another within that larger will of, of another that larger will, because it binds them, is therefore forced to select. War is the ultimate game, because war is at least a forcing of unity of existence. War is God. So that quote, along with these two, when he's speaking to the kid, there's a flawed piece in the fabric of your heart. Do you think I could not know? You alone were mutinous. You alone reserved in your soul some clemency for the heathen. You came forward, he said, to take part in a work. But you were a witness against yourself. You sat in judgment of your own deeds. You put your allowances before the judgments of history, and you broke with the body of which you were pledged and apart and poisoned it all in its enterprise. So, with those two quotes, do you think Judge Holden, in his special way, is pushing for a life of total immersion? Because I find in the few few times I've been engaged in violence, all in self-defense in my life, mm-hmm. there is an eradication of self-consciousness. And I believe the Judge Holden, that Judge Holden thinks self-consciousness in itself is frail and causes frailty. What do you think of that theory? Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting question. And um, one, one question I want to throw back at you is, um, like, when you say that Judge Holden is pushing for a life of total immersion, total immersion in violence, total immersion in what? So I'm curious about that. Well, I wanted to ask, I'll, I'll yeah. counter that question with another question. Yeah. Besides violence, 
what other physical actions eradicate self-consciousness completely? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think violence does eradicate it. I also think love does. But there's right. a quote that waiting for love is like waiting for the sun to shine. Mm-hmm. And life needs every moment. I can't remember yeah. who said that. Yeah. But it is a way of forcing one into themselves and right. focusing only on a task that is outside of oneself. And that's why the judge is constantly pushing for more night and more mm-hmm. war because mm-hmm. he believes, well, I'll, I'll let you. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think that the, 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 that, um, that the judge believes that violence trumps everything, right? That, that, that violence, that like that death, is you know that he who kills wins to put it you know kind of crudely um and that um you know so he and uh, you know at various points in the novel he sort of uh articulates a kind of enlightenment view of things right that if you can understand the world you can control it right which is what we believe right so we believe that knowledge and reason is power um but and 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 so does the judge at moments um and he speaks in the language you know he speaks the language of the law he speaks the language uh of the enlightenment he speaks the language of the wise man but he also speaks the language of violence and i do believe that he ultimately believes that violence is the ultimate judge for all of the reasons you've you've, you've said because if, you know if you kill someone you know that that the the person who kills is the victor, right? Is and 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 that's what he's that I think is what he's arguing in the first quote. I take the second quote with a kind of grain of salt because the judge we know from the very beginning that the judge is a liar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know when he encounters the preacher at the tent revival, he tells all those lies about what the man has done, and and basically. Um, you know, he says that he is wanted for, um, I think, molesting a, 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 ch- a young girl and for having sex with a goat. Um, and uh, there's like, you know, it's a kind of funny scene, actually, I, which I only it, realized. It made me laugh the first time I read it. Many years to realize that it was funny. Uh, but these lies, which he delivers so eloquently, you know, result in this kind of vigilante justice like these men go out to kill that preacher and then later on in a bar when he's buying drinks for everyone the judge reveals he hasn't he's never seen that man before in his life so our first introduction to the judge is that he does not tell the truth and so i think that you know i think that the second quote is really interesting because you know you alone were mutinous, you alone reserved in your soul some clemency for the heathens. And I, in fact, you know, one of the questions that I always pose to my students, because I was very invested in this question for so long, was uh, was whether the kid evolved morally. And so when you come to this, like, when you come to this pronouncement from the judge, it actually, it's kind of reassuring. If you want to believe that the kid has evolved morally in the novel, then this provides evidence if you believe the judge, right? Because you're like, but well, he did reserve clemency for the heathen, right? He was mutinous. But if you then, you know, and I I think this was what I spent years and years doing. It's like looking through the novel, where's the evidence of that, right? And the the only evidence of that is kind of non-evidence, right? Because the kid 
weirdly enough, the kid disappears through the whole heart of this novel, right? So we have the kid at the beginning, and then we have the kid at a few key points in the middle of the novel, but in most of the major kind of um, slaughters, slaughtering of, of um, native people, the kid is not present. So you can you can sort of wish, you can imagine that the kid is not killing Indians, but we actually don't have any evidence, textual evidence to support that point. And so I just, so, you know, I think that, you know, so I think that this quote is really interesting because I think it gives us something we want, but it's, uh, it's not necessary, but we have to really take it with a grain of salt, right? We have to really ask ourselves, is the judge being truthful here? But I do think that there's something, I mean, I think that there's something in what you pointed out um, about the sort of the eradication of self-consciousness, but we might also say just the eradication of interiority. Mm -hmm. In a way, because it's there's an earlier iteration, I, I'm just going to grab it. There's an earlier iteration of these of these passages in, a, in an earlier draft of the novel where the judge says, um, uh, but you reserved a witness in your own heart and you sat in judgment on your own deeds. And because of this inward looking in that small part of the whole, you brought with you on, you brought with you on an expedition of war, a wound that already festered unseen. Mm. And I, I find it so interesting because what I understand the judge or one thing I understand the judge to be saying to the kid there is that the kid's crime is too much interiority, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, is again, sort of like, it makes me laugh because that's exactly what we don't get in this novel is interiority. And that's about what, every, yeah. sorry to cut you off, about every 60 pages, there are faint flickers of interiority yes. or remorse or a right. semi-kind action, the offering right. of his flask to a thirsty yeah. person the a kind of are you okay sentiment but that's about it yes and yes I, I wanted to ask you um why do you think that's why the judge is so interested why is the judge so interested in the kid why is he always smiling at him why does he pick him out of all the mercenaries and all the people he meets what is their relationship I think that, you know, this is actually a point that one of my students made. So I'm going to give credit to a, to a student. He, he, wrote a argue, he wrote a paper in which he argued that, um, that Blood Meridian sets up a series of false oppositions. And so there's like, and I, I don't remember all of the instances of, of the false oppositions, but this is, but the kid and the judge are an example of a false opposition, right? So that it appears that they're in opposition to each other, right? The judge who we know to be evil and the kid who I think we hope, we hope that the kid is kind in some way or slightly more morally evolved than the judge. But in fact, as I recall the student arguing, it's not a true opposition, but that's one of the things that makes Blood Meridian so tricky is that we think that the two characters are opposites. And I think that's why the judge shows such interest in the kid and why McCarthy characterizes the kid in the way that he does. 
because he wants us to, he really wants us to believe that they are at opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're not. No, they're you know, not. Because, you know, and I think that, um, you know, I think that, that that's, you know, as you mentioned, you know, one of the things that makes the, the novel so interesting is that the kid does demonstrate loyalty for the Glanton gang, for members of the Glanton gang, for Sproul. Uh, the man that he meets after um, White's army is slaughtered. Um, and so there, yeah, so there are these instances of the kid demonstrating loyalty, loyalty to others. But, but you know, and I, I think that um, I heard someone else articulate this point, but, you know, does demonstrating loyalty to a band of Indian killers make you moral? <laughs> I don't think you know, it makes you moral. I just think it makes you something well, in a right. band of nothing. Yes. I think because I think, you know, and so I think what happens in Blood Meridian is that it would be very difficult to, I think that McCarthy creates a kind of um, a semblance of uh, morality in the kid or of interiority in the kid, right? You know, because he acts in these ways that seem decent at times. And we think about the ways that, um, you know, the tools we have to characterize characters, you know, we have like, we have thought, we have speech, we have action, and we have appearance, right? Just, you know, fiction 101, right? So in this novel, we don't get any interiority. We get speech, we get dialogue, we get some dialogue, not a lot of dialogue, though. When you look back at how much the kids speaks, it's it's not much. No. Um but we get action, right? And so we think that that action somehow reveals a kind of like uh, moral moral interior. And I, I think that I think that that's one of the strategies that McCarthy uses to keep us reading. I think it would be very difficult to pull off this novel if we didn't have at least one character for whom we were kind of rooting. But the kind of the the great sort of um, power of this novel is the way that then McCarthy completely, um, I think, shows us in the end of the novel that we can't, that that the narrator is going to triumph over the kid, right? That, so there's this, I, I think this moment, I'm going to just turn to it for a second. There's a moment, um, if I can find it. Um, Well, it's the moment um, when the kid is, he's now a man and he's traveling on his own and he encounters the Indian woman in the cave and he speaks to her. It's, it's a summarized dialogue. He speaks, speaks to her at great length and he says he'll help her, that he's going to, he's getting to take her back to her people. And then by the end of that, we learn that she's just a dried shell, right? And that's like, you know, so she's she's not alive. So this this moment of great kind of empathy, which it seems, is purely symbolic because the woman is dead. Right. Yeah. And that's an instance, I think, of the of the um the narrator just tamping down, saying, like, if the kid wants to change, I'm not going to allow him to change, right? I'm not going to allow the reader the kind of, uh, I'm not going to allow the reader the um, the kind of comfort of seeing this character redeemed. 
because this novel is very much, I think, about the fact that there's we cannot provide any rationale for the violence that we did in conquering, you know, the West and the United States. Right. It's just it's you know, it's violent. It's genocidal. It's violence for the sake of pleasure even though the story we tell ourselves in this country is it's violence and service to like, you know, the spread of Christianity, right? Economic opportunity, uh, mm. democracy, et cetera. Um, so that's <laughs> my long-winded answer. No, that's, yeah, I um, I completely agree with you. Um, just to elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. Why do you think he chose an omniscient narrator for this book? Well, I mean, I think that, like, I, I'm not sure I would describe it exactly as omniscient. I know we all mean different things by omniscience, but I think, like, what he has is he's got, like, there's a narratorial intelligence in the novel, right, that we see from the very opening pages, you know, see the child, right, this this narrator who's going to make pronouncements, upon um upon the kid you know the child kid man right upon the landscape um uh you know upon many of the events in the novel right but then we have a kind of what feels like a point of view character but it's a point of view character without a character so we have a protagonist in the kid and yet we have no interiority right and you know so it's interesting you know um I really like James Wood's book, How Fiction Works. And he says, like, once you introduce a character, like a third person character, the narration can't help but bend around that character. So some of the like things, some of the the narration, the the, you know, things that aren't necessarily dialogue or thought, that the language itself starts to seem like it belongs to the point of view character, right? And there are these moments where you can see like that there's the narrator's language, but also moments where it feels like the point of view character's language. Um, and uh, but that doesn't happen here. Right. So we have the kid as someone who's capable of perceiving. But then but not capable of thinking. And um, I think that the. I think that. I think that McCarthy chooses that as a strategy, again, because it would be, we would, if we had access to the kids' thoughts, I think we would start to, I think we would start to sympathize with him. And I, so I think that McCarthy wants to prevent that from happening. In the I also house. think it would have made the yeah. book quite boring because how yeah. many times can somebody express inner unexpressed remorse right exactly well right. right the moment that so you know so the kid is based upon um mccarthy got a lot of his source material from a, a 19th century memoir um called my confessions by a writer called samuel chamberlain mm -hmm. you, you probably know all of this so he spot fought in the mexican-american war and he joined up with the glanton game which glanton gang which is actually you know they were living, breathing people in the 19th century. Uh, but the, and he provides that the, the memoir, my confession also provides the uh, prototype for the judge, which no one else can find in any other in, in the historical record. But when you're reading Samuel Chamberlain's accounts of like killing 
Native Americans. There's one moment where he kills um, a Native American and he just feels so deeply guilty about mm -hmm. what he's done um, that you can't help but like his guilt sort of ends up um, obfuscating the fact that he just killed an innocent man who wasn't doing anything, who wasn't threatening his life. There was no reason to do it. He just saw this Native American and he killed him. And he goes, he can't sleep because he feels so guilty. And so we end up sort of getting consumed by his guilt, right? You know, or distracted by his guilt rather than focusing on the fact that he just killed an innocent person, right? And so I think that that's what, I think that you can't help, but once you are um, seeing things through a character's point of view, you can't help but identifying with them to some extent. Yeah. You know, and we can all think of like famous examples of like really despicable characters who we end up liking, right? You know, someone like Humbert Humbert, a pedophile, but he's mm -hmm. like so eloquent and funny that you sort of forget what he's doing at times. And, and truly in love. Yeah, exactly. And truly exactly. in love, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I just think it would be difficult. So I think that, I think that, um, I think that he had to choose this really strange way, you know, this strange narr narrative um, strategy to really tell this story, uh, to really ensure that we didn't see anything redemptive about all of the violence that's done in the novel, that we, that it becomes an anti-Western ra rather than a Western. The judge at a point in the book comes across a character known as the idiot, who's yeah. a um, mentally deficient, um, um, handicapped person who is in a cage and eating his own feces and mm -hmm. people are paying to come and see him. And the judge kind of takes him under his wing. Now, the judge at this point has killed children, women, men, scalped them, raped everyone I've just mentioned. Mm -hmm. He actually, it can be said, and I think it's true, stops the idiot from killing himself when he wades into the water. Mm -hmm. what, this is something I've researched it. I read an article on, I think it was called Idiocy in Westerns, and it, it was about um, introducing those characters, how Faulkner used them. Mm -hmm. and. It, it still made no sense to me. Why does the judge take this character under his wing and spare his life other than the obvious things that he uses him for a sexual play thing? Or yeah. is that the reason? Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I'm not sure to be honest with you. And I think like, I think that there are many things that are kind of mysterious to me about this book. And um, I think that, um, you know, I think that that's part of what makes it such a great book is that you can't explain everything in it. Um, and so I, I suppose like my reading of The Idiot um, is um, is the way in which it makes the judge kind of unpredictable, just as his acts of violence have been unpredictable in mm -hmm. the past. Um, so that in a way when he, um, you know, when he takes on the idiot we're probably expecting him to kill the idiot and um because he's killed every other you know everyone else or he's killed many people who he seemed to care for um and he doesn't in this instance 
And so there's something kind of unpredictable and slightly um, random about it. Um, and it's something that, you know, I, I think that one of the ways the violence works in this book is that we're just never expecting it, right? We're not given, there's no foreshadowing. It just comes out of nowhere again and again and again, particularly the the um, the murder of the most innocent creatures, right? Yeah. Um, and so I suppose that there's something, um, there's something just deeply, you know, um, deeply uncomfortable about the, that he has him, right? Because we're expecting something bad to happen, right? It's sort of, it's sort of like, you know, the, the kind of the power of random violence is not knowing when it's going to happen. Um, so, but, you know, I would be curious to know what other people have to say about it. I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't have anything terribly smart uh, to say about the idiot. It, it it does. And I think it's good that it remains a mystery, which leads me to my next question. You did a ton of research on this book. You went through the archives. You've been teaching it for 10 years. This is a very special book to me, but I've found myself, the more I learn about it, slumping a little bit as if I'm canceling a private kind of mystical experience from my youth or not youth. I was 27 when I read it, but you know, pulling the curtain back on something very private. Did you get that sensation while you were researching it? Um, you know, one of the things I did when I was researching it is that I made a choice not to read, um, literary criticism about it. You know, I read a little bit of literary criticism, but I I don't see myself as a literary critic. I'm a writer. I'm a fiction writer. I don't feel like I speak the language of literary criticism. And often when I read literary criticism, I feel pretty stupid. Um, so I really wanted to figure out how to say something about the book that didn't involve reading a lot of literary criticism about McCarthy or this novel in particular. Um, and so in a way, um, you know, in a way, looking at earlier drafts of a novel actually is very mysterious, you know, is actually, is actually imbues the final book. Mm, with that's interesting. Mystery. Okay. Yeah. Because you just think about, like, you think about all of the kind of choices that the writer had to make along the way and you don't have necessarily answers to why they made the choices they did. I mean, I have, I, there was lots of evidence of um, McCarthy pulling back on interiority. Whenever there was like any hint of interiority, he cut it out. There was evidence of him cutting out um, any instances of foreshadowing that would give away that something violent was about to happen. So I could see that. But then like you just read the kind of like the versions of a passage, right? That, you know, the five versions of a passage. And it's it's really like mysterious about how does someone come up with the final version, you know? Yeah, I mean, so, right. Yeah, and I think that this novel, there's, I mean, as I said, there are sections of this novel that I still don't really feel like I have a handle on. And um and um, I really like that. And, you know, it, it kind of makes it hard to teach because like in a way teaching is about sort of pulling the curtain up. And sometimes when I'm teaching, all I want to do is like read aloud passages and just say like, wow, you know, but that's not, <laughs> the, 
that's not very pedagogically sound. Um, you know, uh, so, um, so I, I don't think the, the novel has necessarily lost its, its mystery. Um, I'm not so sure. I do get tired. You know, I have an argument about the novel and like every time I teach it, I am making my same argument about the novel that gets a little bit tiresome, but, um, so I think, you know, I think I decided like the last time I taught it, I thought like, I'm never teaching it again. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to stop talking about it, you know, and okay. yeah, yeah. Have my own sort of special relationship to it. Um, okay. I have another question about another thing I don't understand in the book. Yeah. Um, the kid's relationship with the hermit and why that scene happens. I've read a few things. I had a bit of an instinct that he might, it might be a, an instance of, of mirroring himself that he's seeing himself in 60 years or 70 years alone yeah, um, and filled with hatred like the hermit. I don't know. What do you think? Well, doesn't the hermit have that speech about how like man can't know, man can't know his mind because all he has to know his mind, all he has to know his mind is his own mind um and he can know his heart but he wouldn't want to look too closely he wouldn't want to look in there yeah, yeah exactly i mean i it seems like the i it feels to me like the man is the hermit is saying something about just man's inherent propensity towards evil you know towards things that towards um towards violence towards the creation of um you know he says something about like you know, man can make a machine and the machine can just continue on. Um, and and so evil, to, evil to run it for a thousand years. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a sense, I just feel like that that's like, it's the, the man, the, the hermit is kind of like articulating the opposite of what, of the way we view history and the way we view progress, you know, and by the end of the novel, you know, like there are like the, the the bone pickers and the orphans and the last of the buffalo have been killed. And then like in the epilogue, you know, uh, I someone recently told, told me that the epilogue is about someone like planting uh, fence posts. So the whole West is going to be fenced. Um, so I, I just like, so I just understand it as a warning to the kid that, um, you know, because the kid is kind of at that point, like sort of seeking some kind of like economic stability. And it seems like it's just a, a warning that <laughs> that nothing is going to go, you know, that 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 man is kind of evil, right? That we're fallen creatures, which I think is like sort of I don't think it's so different from what the narrator believes in the novel you know that we um that you know that 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 humans are very dangerous creatures um who um do not hesitate to do violence to each other did you study gnosticism at all in relation to this book i didn't no i i really did it and i know it's you know so i i uh you know yeah i didn't study did you i mean what do you think yeah, I did. And I, I go over this in the, in the introduction briefly. 
while Christians ask, how did evil get into this world? Gnostics mm-hmm. ask, how did good get into it? That man is inherently flawed, inherently evil, right. and that the creator of the universe is at best uh, lazy and apathetic and at worst hostile. Mm-hmm. But within every human being is something called the divine spark and human being souls are like tombs. And to release this divine spark is to gain closer proximity to the true benevolent God. Mm-hmm. And that is only released through knowledge and Gnosis means knowledge. So mm-hmm. one of my thoughts, and it's, it's actually not my thought, but um, it, it's been written about pretty extensively is that the judge notices this divine or alien spark in the kid and wants to eradicate it and toys mm-hmm. with him for the book and notice that he notices the kid has a propensity for goodness that he mm-hmm. actually could change. Mm-hmm. And even though the kid doesn't change at the end of the book, the judge, mm-hmm. well, does what he does. I won't yeah. spoil it for, for people who haven't read it. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's interesting, but I think for me there remains the um I guess there just remains the fact that the kid I don't I, I the 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 I don't see the kid's acts as um particularly good, right? So I, I think that I think we want to believe in the goodness of the kid or that there's some goodness in the kid um because Saint I flickers. Saint yeah, flickers. Saint flickers right i think that we do want to believe that but i think that i think that's overwhelmed by the the kids violence right and the kids um connections and participation uh in uh you know in the Glanton gang, right? And in their acts. I don't see any evidence that he's not that he's not alongside of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um killing native people. So um yeah. So I think that I I guess I see it as like an you know another an instance of kind of like a dichotomy that's not act absolutely that's not actually true. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I actually went as far as yeah. ordering a book by um Jacob Bohem, who writes the uh the intro paragraph, and it was just unintelligible. I didn't understand it. But it was yeah. cool. Yeah. I bought it and I brought it out at a Christmas party one time and started reading passages of it, and it just made no sense to anybody, yeah. including myself. Um okay, what makes that they've been trying to make this movie on and off since its publication. I don't think they're going to. If they did, would you watch it? It's really interesting. Um, I mean, I would watch it because I would just be curious. Uh, But, um, you know, I think that so many of the landscapes in the novel are really created through language and through the narrator's point of view that I'm not convinced that you could visually reproduce the narrator's point of view in um, cinematically, right? You know, because like, Absolutely. If I, you know, if you look about, so this is, you know, the, the, um, 
the landscape is just like depicted again and again as like hostile to humans, as violent, as um, you know, as inherently violent, uh, as dangerous and deadly, as indifferent, um, as without any nurturing characteristics, right? And um, you know, I've just like here's a like a typical landscape description from Blood Meridian. Okay. In the evening, they came out upon a mesa that overlooked all the country to the north. The sun to the west lay in a holocaust, right? Oh, my gosh. Where there rose a steady column of small desert bats. And to the north, along the trembling perimeter of the world, dust was blowing down the void like the smoke of distant armies. The crumpled butcher paper mountains lay in sharp, uh, let's see, um lay in sharp shadow fold under the dark blue dusk and in the middle distances the glazed bed of a dry lake lay shimmering like the mare imbrium and herds of deer were moving north in the last of the twilight carried over the plains by wolves who were themselves the color of the desert floor so it's remarkable writing but I think if I were, I happen to like desert landscapes. And so sure. if I were presented with a desert landscape in a movie, I might think it was beautiful, right? Rather than, I just, I don't know how you would visually depict um, the sun like a Holocaust, right? No, you absolutely, know, you can't. Yeah, exactly. So it seems like a huge part of the power of the novel is its language. And so, so that is one challenge, right? And the way that the that the narrator constructs these like violent landscapes to us for us, or these like baroque scenes of violence, right? So, so there's that challenge, right? What would you lose by losing that voice? And then the other challenge would be like, could someone actually sit through all the senseless violence? Like that would be challenging. And could one whittle it down to two two hours or two right. and a half? Like absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. Look, right. This is this is a fun game, but yeah. if it were to be produced, who would play the judge? Oh gosh, I am so I know no actors. I'm so culturally illiterate. I mean, I watch movies, but I can't remember any actors. So I don't. Who who do you think would play the judge? Tom Hardy. Okay. Daniel Day Lewis. Uh huh. And Marlon Brando, if he was still alive. Oh, yes. Yeah. Those are great choices. There's a bit of an apocalypse now Marlon Brando thing going on with the judge. When I picture the judge, I picture Marlon Brando in Apocalypse mm -hmm. Now for some yeah. reason. It's the the right. vastness of his body and the baldness. Right. <laughs> right. And that's interesting. Like, Apocalypse Now is a great example of how maybe they you could pull off this movie. Except that I would argue that we have, like, a different attitude towards the West. I mean, I think in a way, maybe the movie would have to be shot someplace else, right? It couldn't be shot in the American West. Like you would have to move it. If you think about the way that, you know, Heart of Darkness gets turned into Apocalypse Now, right? And gets reimagined. Yeah. Like so how would this, where would, where would you move this novel? Where would you, where would it be set? You know, if it was being made for an American audience, where could you set it so that you could kind of convey the things that you wanted to convey about the landscape? It's, you know. Oh, that's actually really interesting. I didn't think of that. Maybe yeah. the only 
way it would work is if you set it the same characters in a modern urban scenario and had yes. the same language and and maybe that would work but i agree yes. with you the the vivid depictions of the landscape they're too beautiful and it's just yeah. excuse my language it's the coolest fucking writing you yes. know it's just yeah. it's so cool when i my actually my most vivid experience of the book was listening to the audiobook of it. Have you ever heard the audiobook of it? I have. Yes, yeah. By R Richard Poe, the narrator. Mm -hmm. Did you like it? I found it I amazing. Loved it. Yes. He nails it. He just absolutely yes. nails it. I recommend anyone um even before they read the book to go out and listen to the audiobook cuz I found it an even more accessible experience. I did too, because, you know, I think what was interesting about the audiobook is that I actually heard the characters' voices in a way that I didn't when I read the novel. Because I think, like, when you read the novel, it's kind of easy to sort of get fixated on the the narrator and not hear the characters. And I heard so much more humor in the book um, when I heard it, when I listened to the audio version, which is not to say it's a humorous book, but a lot of the dialogue is actually quite humorous um and that for me for some reason i just didn't hear that i had i don't hear that when i'm reading it um so yeah i agree it's it's a it's great to listen to the audiobook do you think stephanie that this is a work of genius absolutely <laughs> no what it's, yeah sorry go on yeah no it's it, it's a beautifully written book uh it's, um, you know, the language is extraordinary. The vision is extraordinary. The uh, the formal characteristics of the novel, the ways that McCarthy breaks all the rules, right? When it comes to narration, it comes to character, comes to plot. This is a novel that basically has no plot, right? The engine of the novel is they wrote on, they wrote on, they wrote yeah. on, right? Um, so, um, for someone to break so many rules and write such a successful novel makes it a work of genius for me. Um, uh, plus the vision, right? The ideas are so original, um, you know, deeply original to write a novel that does not celebrate the conquest of the West that really critiques it in the way that it does. And... I think the judge is one of the most memorable characters in literature. He's just, he's, he literally is larger than life in the novel. And he's like larger than life, you know, in the sense of the, the term, when we say that about a character, he's just, he's so vividly described and so enigmatic. And, and indescribable in so far as, you know, people have referred to him as the devil or evil yeah. incarnate or the war right. of God. None of those hit it. It just yeah. doesn't hit it. It's something else. And right. I think that's what makes it genius. It's that yeah. that phrase, something else. Yes. Blood Meridian is something else. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Can you name a book that's the opposite of Blood Meridian? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. Um so I taught Blood Meridian uh, alongside um, um, Willa Cather's My Antonia. Okay. Uh, which uh, is in many ways, I mean, you can see there are lots of different ways of looking at My Antonia, but you can see it as a kind of nostalgic agrarian novel, right? Nostalgic for an earlier moment in the United States. 
um, just when the plains were being settled. There's a sense in uh, my Antonia of the kind of the fertility and goodness of the land, right? The land gives to people. It's the source of great, of the divine, right? And you see that in her many landscape descriptions. Um, and it's also opposite in the way if you like go beyond it as a kind of nostalgic agrarian novel, uh, a novel that, I mean, a critique of it is that it kind of conceals the violence of uh, the the sort of the of the opening of the West. Um, all the violence in the novel sort of happens on the periphery. Um, but then another way in which it's the opposite is that it becomes a celebration of strong women. And, you know, and that's been often been a critique of uh, Cormac McCarthy is just that sure. there are almost no women in his novels. Um, and, you know, at the center of um, at the center of my Antony is, of course, is Antonia, who's just this incredibly self-reliant, resourceful um you know, she starts out as a, a girl who's immigrated um, and then becomes like, you know, the kind of matriarch of a big family um, on a sort of a successful farm. Um, so, I yeah, that's one one novel that I think is totally different. I mean, you could like point to another way about thinking about this question is to point to any Western that celebrates the kind of celebrates the cowboy as a hero celebrates the violence as in service to some um to some you know greater good um uh then you know another another kind of um uh another novel that i taught in the context of blood meridian was scott mamaday's housemate of dawn uh okay. which is, yeah which is a novel about um about uh, a native american man returning to his um uh, to his village after fighting in World War II. Um, and then also about the the kind of the efforts to assimilate Native Americans, to bring them into cities. Um, but I suppose the way in which it feels like a kind of, it's an interesting conversation with Blood Meridian, again, in its depictions of the landscape, which, is, which are just so different from the depic depictions of the landscape in Blood Meridian, um, you know, Mamaday says that the whole worldview of the Indian is predicated upon the principle of harmony in the universe. Um, and that's true in all of his landscape des descriptions. There's a sense of the, the land, the landscape not being in service to ideas, but being a kind of thing in and of itself. Um, yeah. So what do you think? Like, what would you see as like novels that are quite different from Blood Meridian? <sighs> I have no idea because yeah. I, I, I wanted to, uh, I'll think about that. And I'll, by yeah. the end of the interview, I'll try to come up with yeah. one. I wanted to ask you if you've read his newest Stella Maris. I haven't yet. Um, have you because read them? It, I'm really looking forward I've, to I've, them. Yeah, I've read both The Passenger and Stella Maris. Uh, contrary to popular belief, I think you should read Stella Maris first. The book makes more sense. The two books... Conjoin in a, mm -hmm. in a just a, in a better way if you read Stella Maris first. But Stella Maris involves a female character for the entire book. It's an interview with a psychiatrist and a schizophrenic math genius woman in a mm. hospital. The entire thing is written like a play. There's not one description. It's all dialogue. It's so kind cool. of like how No Country for Old Men was written. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. I got to say, I found it amazing. He was, how old was he when he died? Do you remember? 
Oh gosh, he was in his eighties. Um, was he eighty-eight or so? I mean, I think he was. He was quite old. Yeah, he just had a remarkable life. Seeing as how he turned down interviews pretty much to everyone, why do you think, besides the obvious monetary reasons, do you think he went on Oprah's book club for the road, or do you think his agent just said, "Listen, pal, I've had enough of you. We're going to no, make ten million dollars. Get on the show." I don't know. I mean, it seems like he was, it seems like he was slightly more sociable in recent years. I mean, I think about he, um, wasn't he living in Santa Fe and he, um, he belonged to some sort of like, um, physicist institute. I, I'm getting all the details wrong, but I, I have no idea, honestly, why he decided to do that, whether he was he was uh, gently coerced into it or whether she was a big enough name that he was kind of interested in talking to her. Would you recommend your children read Blood Meridian? And if so, <laughs> at what age? Yeah, no. I, I, I tell most people that they uh, should read Blood Meridian in the summertime and it, only if they're not depressed. Um, you know, I think it's, I mean, you, you had a very positive experience reading it and um, it's an amazing novel. Um, I think it would be, I mean, I think a precocious, you know, high school student can read Blood Meridian. I, you know, college freshmen are not much older than preco precocious uh, high school students. So, um, but I don't think like, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone under 12. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. If if you had three questions to ask Cormac McCarthy, if he was still alive and sitting in the room, what would they be? About anything. It doesn't have yeah. to be Meridian. Um, I mean, some of my questions are like probably connected to the fact that I'm deep in the middle of revising a novel right now. And, um, you know, having to suffer through days where things aren't going very well. So one question, which is such a sort of ordinary question might be like, you know, did you ever lose faith in yourself? And when you did, what did you do? Mm. I'm just curious about that. Um, that is really an undergraduate question, but that's, that's kind of on my mind right now. Um, I might want to just like, I'd be curious to know, to hear him talk a little bit about how he went about doing the research for Blood Meridian. I know he felt like, I mean, I I know from interviews that he felt like no one had written a great novel about the American West and he set out to do that. Um, but I would be interested to just hear him talk at greater length about the origins of the story um not so much the research but just like what he was thinking about um i'd also be curious to hear him talk about i know he he did an extensive like horseback ride through the southwest uh to write blood meridian i'd, I'd like to know what he got out of that out of being in that landscape on the back of a horse um so I would, I'd be curious about that. Um, and I suppose um, I'd be interested in 
Cormac McCarthy's favorite book written in the last 20 years. 20 years. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Because I know, you know, I know that like Blood Meridian is in conversation with a lot of great works of literature, but I wonder who he had, I wonder if he admired or who he admired in terms of contemporary writers. I'd even ask him in the last five years yeah. if he even reads anything in the last yeah, five exactly. years. Who yeah. knows if he does? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to tell everyone listening to go immediately buy and buy Stephanie Rents's book. Uh, <laughs> I meant to kill ye because um, I found it fantastic and beautifully written and so accessible, and it didn't have that kind of I find irritating flair of academia that a lot of stuff written on Blood Meridian does. So great work, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's been so fun to talk about this novel. It's, you know, will, it's will you do really one good. more favor for me before we go? Do you have the book in front of you? I actually don't have a copy of it with me because I'm moving. I'm in the process of moving across the country. And so my books are all in boxes. Okay, give me one second, okay? okay? Because there's one thing I want to finish on. Okay, great. Okay. So the final paragraph of Blood Meridian is about the judge. He wafts his hat, and the lunar dome of his skull passes palely under the lamps, and he swings about and takes possession of one of the fiddles, and he pirouettes and makes a pass, two passes, dancing and fiddling all at once. His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in light and in shadow, and he is a great favorite. He never sleeps, the judge. He is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die. Now, I read that because we were talking about immersive experiences earlier, and I think the only other exper experience that is fully immersive and evacuates self-conscious besides violence is dancing. Hmm. And that's all I have to say. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. It was thank a real you. pleasure. Thank you so much, Jesse. Have what a great note to end on. Have a great day. Thanks, bye bye. You too. Bye.